Hello and welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. I've got something special for you today. It's a crossover episode. I recorded this conversation with Amar Patel, who is running for vice president on the national ticket of the American Solidarity Party. And I put it on my Credo Catholic podcast. Amar is a Catholic. We talk about uh, some ideas in Catholic social teaching and Catholic theology. But I think there's a lot here to, uh, to, to think about as far as American politics, our current political moment, escaping what is often presented to us as a binary choice between Republican and Democrat, thinking about human flourishing and what that looks like and, and how we can embrace the common good together. And so I wanted to have, I wanted this to have a wider audience, not just a, a Catholic audience on my Credo Catholic podcast. So I think there's a lot of good things here to, to think about, to talk about. I hope you enjoy it. If you do like this and you want to engage in some of the ideas a little bit more, you can check out my Credal Catholic podcast, creedalcatholic.com, or just find Creedal, C-R-E-E-D-A-L, Catholic, wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today, I'm speaking to Amar Patel, and I'm very excited for this conversation. This is timely. We are in the weeks running up to the the 2020 presidential election. And Amar Patel is actually himself running on the vice presidential uh, ticket or the presidential ticket as the vice presidential candidate for the American Solidarity Party. So Amar, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been a fan of the American Solidarity Party for for quite some time. I've done a few podcast episodes already discussing the the choices before us and the two major parties in America. And it's really not a heartening sight. So I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, some alternative visions, you know, thinking about political possibility beyond the Republican Democrat binary and the policy platforms of the American Solidarity Party and et cetera. Um, so, so welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you. I'm going to read your bio here, Amar, so our listeners can get a sense of, of who you are and what your background is. And then if you don't mind, we'll just dive right in and, and talk a little bit about, about your party and why you're running and what the end goal is and uh, what you think about our, our future. So that sounds great. Great. So here's the bio for my listeners. Amar Patel was born to Indian immigrants who came to this country in the late 1960s. His father worked as a civil engineer for the city of Chicago, and his mother worked as a union laborer in cleaning supply factory. His parents sponsored the immigration of many family members during his childhood, and he grew up with several aunts, uncles, and cousins in his family home at once. He received bachelor's degrees in math, chemistry, and psychology, and a master's in education from the, from the University of Illinois. After meeting his wife at the Newman Center during college, they moved to the Chicago suburbs where they have been teachers for the last 20 years. They have two children in high school. Amar has spent years on many committees for school and curriculum development, given talks at state conferences, worked on several church councils, and organized major speech competitions. He has coached speech team, math team, tennis, golf, soccer, and basketball. He serves his community through the Knights of Columbus and other local organizations. He's a published novelist, lead singer for a band, member of a competitive softball team. All right, I like that. Uh, but his passion is in building community and bringing people together. So Amar, that's that's a long introduction. I wanted to do the whole thing though, because I think it's important to understand where you're coming from and also to understand that you are, you're here running uh, for vice president of the United States on a third party ticket, the American Solidarity Party. But it's not as if you have spent your entire career as a political operative. You have uh, been doing a lot of things that sort of the, the everyday American has done. And I imagine that gives you a really keen insight into the concerns of everyday Americans. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, having the chance to not, you know, after graduating college and, and going into what we would say real life, as you and most listeners are experiencing uh, in diversifying, you know, who I hang out with. And you mentioned like I play softball and, and you do you play softball, Zach? I do. You know, it's been a few years, but I used to play on a competitive team and it was a ton of fun. I, I oh. substituted um, for a friend uh, last year 
over the summer once. And let's just say I, I was a little rusty. I had to shake the rust off a bit. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, I, that was probably one of the 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 things that experience for, for and I still play and I still have the same friends that I played competitive ball with and we just play on league night. Um, but really that gave me a diversity of viewpoints more than anything else in my life. I mean, going to university, you kind of, you get stuck in the same kind of people you hang out with. I was very involved in the Newman center, which means, you know, my friends were mainly Catholic, uh, and devout, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we'd go to a daily mass. It, it just was a very, very, um, common, we had a common set of beliefs. And then, you know, working in a school setting, even though people had different faiths, you don't really talk about your faith too much in, in a public school setting, uh, but you're, you have a similar mindset, you know, you're all professionals and you all kind of had the same training. You know, for me, it was math teachers. And so when I started playing softball, it really gave me a real, real uh, wide look at how lots of different people live their lives in different ways. Uh, but at the same time, core values were very, very similar uh, across different faiths. Uh, people that did not practice any any faith, uh, blue collar workers, you know, white collar workers, people who uh, did not have jobs but just loved the the game, and maybe were living with their parents or uh, with a friend or whatever, and uh, you know, just experience what they experienced through their through their eyes. You know, mainly made me understand that uh, how first of all how blessed I was to go through the experience of, of my own life, but but at the same time to, uh, you know, stand in what we call ourselves the American Solidarity Party. Uh, you know, it, it, solidarity often is called, you know, the, the realizing that we're all in this together. But I think even a deeper principle in Catholic social teaching, it's about recognizing other people as brothers and sisters. And, you know, from playing competitive softball for a long time, I mean, these, they're, these are guys I consider my brothers, you know, and we went through a lot of uh, tough games together and traveled together. Uh, talked about our, our family lives and just, you know, the sorrows and joys and passions that people had. Um, and I really got a sense of that kind of extended brotherhood. And then when they were in need, I felt compelled to to uh, to be in solidarity with them. So a lot of kind of, you know, shared tears and, uh, you know, work time and helping people move and all that kinds of stuff that you would imagine. Well, I love that. And one of the reasons why I mentioned just your background and sort of your familiarity with with everyday Americans like me and my listeners, right? It's, it's important, I think, to have someone who's on a national ticket who understands those things. I mean, I remember when, uh, when, you know, we had the 2016 election and there were, there were, um, claims that Hillary Clinton was the most qualified candidate ever to run for the office, you know, because she had been first lady. So she knew the pressures of the executive job. She had been a Senator for eight years. She was secretary of state under president Obama, et cetera. Uh, and then on the other hand, you know, you have Trump who's running as a total outsider, et cetera. But to, to, to pretend or imagine that, and that either of these candidates is familiar with the plight of the American worker, uh, the concerns of, you know, the single mom who's trying to make ends meet for her four kids, uh, the young family who is living below minimum wage and trying to scrape enough money together to put beans and rice on the table yet again for dinner. Um, you know, th to pretend that, that either candidate really understood that is, uh, completely ridiculous. And so it's it's really refreshing to see someone on a national party ticket who has not spent their entire life in policy, uh, who is not, you know, you know, has, has not made millions of dollars in in real estate transactions across the world, et cetera. Uh, and even like Biden, I mean, I think Biden this time around in 2020 has paid has, has successfully to some degree pitted himself as the blue collar candidate. 
Um, but he's been in the Senate since, well, until 2009, mm-hmm. from 1973 to 2009, and then obviously the vice presidency, uh, and that ended in 2016. But I mean, uh, this person also very out of touch um, with with everyday Americans. So, so that's great. And I love how you bring that perspective of solidarity, viewing your fellow Americans as brothers and sisters with you. So let's, let's pull that thread a little bit and talk to me a little bit more about solidarity. When I, when I heard this, uh, heard of this party several years ago, the American solidarity party, I immediately thought of, um, uh, the, the solidarity movement in Europe in the, uh, in the end of the cold war era. Um, and John Paul II's Poland was very involved in that. And, the solidarity movement led by young people in many cases uh, successfully pushed back against communism. Do you, do you have uh, an idea of how much the American solidarity party sort of identifies with those principles that animated that movement in Europe? Well, I think, you know, since Christian democratic principles, uh, you know, our solidarity, subsidiarity, personalism, and, and sphere sovereignty traditionally from those European movements that when we uh, wanted to form, we did start our, the party earlier in 2012, when several people got together and wanted to form an American Christian Democratic Party. Uh, and when we incorporated uh, in 2016, officially, I mean, that was kind of more uh, an idea back in those days. But it, when, when the papers were drawn up, and we actually uh, did all the FEC filing so that we could have a presidential candidate, um, <clears throat> they said they went with the American Solidarity Party for that reason, right, to identify with the, the Polish Solidarity Movement but also to signify that, yes, we are, that is a, co- a core principle coming from traditional Christian democracy that, uh, you know, still flourishes in Europe and, and in South America and a couple of other countries around the world. And we often, you know, people lament, why isn't there a equivalent a party in the United States? And I think that's what that our founders wanted to do. And so, um, you know, one of the things I, I, I teach high school math, and right now, today, we had an institute day where we really spent a lot of time preparing for hybrid, you know, learning. We've been on remote uh, uh, teaching uh, platform right now, every day where the kids are at home and we're at, we're in the building, um, and we're preparing to have some of the kids come back, you know, and and broken up and having limited number of students in the building. And one of the things that we talked about repeatedly was the building of relationships and connections, and so being together with someone. Uh, you know, on equal footing and and with the students and kind of sharing with them space. And, you know, that's where you can then share more emotional connections and more, you know, like that relationship that you can build with a, a student to let them know you really care. It's just so hard to do through Zoom. And I think people uh, that we were talking about, we didn't talk about solidarity per se, but the word relationship came up a lot. And I think, you know, one of the things that in this campaign that I've pushed for is a concept that we're the party we're the only party that talks about, um, you know, family, friends, and faith being the core realities for people. And then when you, you know, try to force the freedom of individualism upon people, like the main two parties do, and in their own ways, each in a different kind of pursuit, that they they are really undercutting what makes people tick, which is solidarity in those environments, family, friends, and faith. Yeah, there's there's so much to talk about there, but I want to identify and and sort of tease out a little bit more about this the Zoom comment that you made and, and the importance of building relationships and how hard that is to do over Zoom sometimes. Now, I served in the military for a while, you know, deployed, et cetera, all that. So I'm well aware of how 
video conferencing technologies can really be a means of keeping connections intact, et cetera, right? And I think all of us, all of us who have used these to some degree or another, you know, kids Skyping grandparents from across the country, separated spouses, whatever. I mean, these, these technologies can be helpful, but they're not a replacement for real person-to-person contact. And I think it's sad that, you know, of all the times for a pandemic to hit us in which we have to be physically separated, it's at a time when our, our national tensions are running so high. I would also suggest, though, that these digital technologies that we use, most especially social media, so not even now Zoom and Skype, but just social media in general, Facebook, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever, those things really actively cut against, I think, an idea of human flourishing that views people as brothers and sisters. And what they've been able to do is just develop this, this incredibly toxic culture in which we, we literally are just teaching ourselves to hate each other. And I see this magnified in the 2020 campaigns of both the Republican and Democratic parties. And, you know, throughout throughout every avenue of social media in which I look, people who are on opposing sides of the bipartisan divide just view the other side as less than human. And these debates just become so wrapped up with vitriol and complete poison. And so it's really refreshing to have a party like yours that comes in and says, we're all in this together. And we are guided by these four principles that, like you said, really are sort of, you know, they're um, in alignment with Christian Democratic parties in Europe, which is a different thing than the modern Democratic Party in the United States, a very different thing. Um, but, but I think that's really, really important. And so you mentioned these four things, um, solidarity, subsidiarity, personalism, and sphere sovereignty. So I want to unpack that for my listeners here, because I think that encapsulates or at least gives a lot of the grounding for the ASP platform. So let's talk about each of those in turn, if you don't mind. So you talked about solidarity sure. a little bit already, seeing mm-hmm. each other as, you know, in a fraternal way, brothers and sisters. Let's talk about subsidiarity. What do you mean by subsidiarity? Yeah, I think the the, the Catholic concept of that, and, and I think just in definitional and usage, uh, a good way to frame that that uh, ASP member recently uh, brought up was it's the understanding that you want government to be as small as possible but as big as necessary. If that uh, that phrase, that turn of a phrase, it works for people. I think that's the best way I've seen it put because you just don't want small government. Like the libertarian uh, notion that just get rid of government, and everything we find is nonsensical. Uh, especially since it's government is so, you know, tangled into our lives right now, and the tentacles are everywhere that you can't just remove that without causing grave damage to. Uh, some of the support structures and and the way things operate, you know, I mean, just it's it's too much of a behemoth at this point. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you you do want to try to get things down to a more local and and uh, intimate level, so that whoever is spending the money, whoever is making those calls and the decisions that that need to be made that are going to impact people's lives, you would like that to be as local as possible. And so that's that is the concept that uh, you know the Catholic Church has used in its own structure, you know with, with the idea of the uh, the family being the the domestic church and, and the first uh, the first educators of children and uh, the first uh, teachers of the faith, right you know defenders of the faith. and then you break off into your parishes and and obviously the diocese and so forth it grows from there. And that model is kind of what you would say that, you know, the, the federalism works at when you have the federal government and again, you have state governments and townships. But I mean, things have gotten, as you were saying, it, it's just the vitriol because the government has 
has uh, centralized to D.C. in such a way that, you know, these national, um, especially the presidency, becomes this this overarching, you know, force that we have to deal with every four years because that's just the size of the government and the impact that it has in, in our lives. Whereas, and then that, that's a really a perception, to be honest, right? I mean, that's not necessarily true. Your local government still does so much, and but we don't think about it that way. And so no one cares about your local activities and everyone freaks out about the, the presidency every four years. That, that's so true. I had a discussion a couple of weeks ago on this podcast where I was just saying I, I really am a huge fan of down ballot voting because those smaller elections, your local mm-hmm. governments, municipal governments, state governments in many cases, um, can have an, a much bigger impact on your life than the federal government. But we have turned this thing into a, you know, this is the most consequential election of our lives because of these two people at the top of the ticket. Well, there's a lot of people in between the top of the ticket and you. And so, so you know, all the issues that get handled at lower levels, they also need good good people in those seats who are making those decisions and carrying out those those policies. So that's a great point. Um, I also like your point about the libertarian conception. I mean, when I uh, articulated publicly a few weeks ago that I would not be voting for either major candidate in this election, uh, someone asked me, you know, why not Joe Jorgensen, the libertarian candidate? And my response was that, you know, to me, libertarian libertarian philosophy, libertarian thought does not have a a, an adequate conception of the common good. And that's why I can't support it. But I really appreciate how uh, the American Solidarity Party is very clear about articulating what that common good looks like. And that leads me to the third one. So we talked about subsi- uh, we talked about solidarity, brothers and sisters, uh, subsidiarity. Government is um, as small as it can be while being as big as it needs to be. And then now we're at personalism. So what is personalism? Yeah, and I think you mentioned that actually in your, in your beginning discussion about human flourishing and then the understanding that that human flourishing doesn't happen in either of the ways that the two major parties or the libertarians propose, and and you know the liber- like the especially in the economic world in, in the worldview where the Republicans will kind of push this idea of rugged individualism and that the market you know that that the market forces and your your impact in the market that's really where you will flourish. The the um, invisible and, hand guides all, Amar. Yes. <laughs> That is exactly, exactly. In the sense that you know, the purpose of life and of your job is to create and and uh, to consume, create and amass capital, right? And then that is not how human beings flourish. And this, and the opposite side would be the concept of you know, if not socialism, but even like the the large government, you know, uh, regulated economy, the command economy, if yeah. you will. Where where everyone uh, just does their part, and you're just a cog in a large machine. That uh, if you do your bit, then the the government will will uh, make things work out for you, and and uh, you know that you will be successful in that vein. And again, that neither of those things provides that that level of human flourishing where we know. And I was, as I discussed before, that you flourish in your family, with your community, and in your deeper uh, organizations like churches and you know, social organizations, like that's where people really find true meaning and true happiness. And that, and then your workplace is a place also to find meaning, but it's not the place to find meaning. And it's just a way to get you to those, to, to allow you to have the freedom to experience those other things that truly provide you, um, you know, the dignity of, of your life. That's great. So that's the first three then. And then the fourth you mentioned is sphere sovereignty. So what is that to round out this uh, sort of the foundation of the platform here? Yeah. So sphere sovereignty is actually, that was new to me. The other three, I kind of had a good grasp on as a Catholic, but 
Um, that sphere sovereignty is more of a, a Kuyperian thing, uh, Calvinist thought. But uh, you know, if, if you think about you know a subsidiarity being trying to as small as possible, as big as necessary, sphere sovereignty. And if you think about the idea of a sphere, you know, I'm a math teacher. Is that there's certain things in our lives, like uh, for example, education, that uh, has like there's experts in that. So you know, I have I have a degree, a master's in education. And I work with people who are also experts and we collaborate and, and make decisions for our students and in, within our school or whatever. But then at the same time, if you think about, you know, like no child left behind in, in uh, the Bush era and just like those race to the top and things like that, where the government starts to, to creep into spheres, uh, also being like the church and even media and, you know, just all, all these different uh, places where they had their own dignity, they had their own purpose in life that that go with solidarity subsidiary and personalism that should be enhancing that and that the the government that the principles of um or the, the purpose of government is not to interfere right is to try to stay out of that as long as justice is being served uh you know by those entities that that they should be able to operate on their own without that kind of you know um outside force Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And to my listeners, um, Amar mentioned Kuyperian. Uh, that's a reference to the work of Abraham Kuyper, uh, who was mm -hmm. a neo-Calvinist theologian. He was prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905, I think. So uh, really a remarkable thinker um, and simultaneously a theologian and a statesman, um, showing perhaps a blueprint for how we can marry some of these ideas with statecraft, which I think is a really important thing. Um, sure. And I want to dive into some of those more specific things about the platform, some of the sort of policy things for which the American Solidarity Party platform as it stands now um, is advocating for Amar. But before we do that, I think maybe an obvious question, I'm sure one that you fielded before is why why run? What is the what is the end goal here? Right. I think you guys are officially on the ballot in less than 10 states. Is that correct? I think it's nine states and right in and about 30 other ones. OK. Uh, there are some gaps around the country where either the write-in process or the ballot access was either impossible or uh, very, very difficult with uh, COVID got in the way sure. of several or, you know, tries and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah. The, like why run is a great question. I know. Yeah, you're right. I feel that very often. Yeah. And it, I, I uh, I'm on your side here, by the way, I wrote a, a couple years ago, I wrote a defensive third party voting. So I think there's a, there's a virtue in and of itself. I think voting itself is a moral act. I think you, you should only vote for, for positive goods, et cetera. So I, I, you know, you don't need to convince me, but I'm certainly open sure. to learning more. And I'm sure there's uh there are more reasons that I haven't thought of. So from your perspective, as someone who's, who's running as the vice presidential candidate for a party that has a statistically negligible, uh, st a chance of, you know, winning a national election, why right. do it at all? What's the, what's the end goal? Well, I'll tell you that one thing that people, uh, you know, need to keep in mind is that, it, the, the the two parties don't serve everyone, right? There's definitely people who, uh, and, and most people, you know, are not in exactly the camps of one of the two major candidates or even in their their realm of ideological, like their viewpoints. Uh, and so there's people in their orbits that kind of would gravitate to one or the other very clearly. But but um, the the there's like an idea of an axis of, two major concerns, one being economic, one being social. And that, you know, traditionally people would say that, you know, the Democrats have a, a liberal economic viewpoint and a liberal social viewpoint, and the uh, Republicans are conservative in both. And, and 
what I've come to to kind of try to get people to understand is that it's just not true. Hundred percent right? agree. Yeah, completely right. Right. That the liberal economic viewpoint is what we would say is conservative. It's that free market notion, uh, and and the words have been butchered so badly. You know, almost that itself would be enough reason for me to run, just so we use those words correctly. Right. You know? But this concept of freedom from coercion. Uh, has become the mantra. I mean, that's the libertarian mantra in, in a total. Like the true liberal liberals are the libertarians, and they have the perfect name for it. Yep. Is that you don't want uh, to be to be free means that you have no one telling you what to do. Uh, you know, in a nutshell. And then there's obviously deeper libertarian thought, and, and some of it's it's uh, pretty well thought out for an academic. But in reality, you know, it, those are the ideas of a teenager, right? You can't tell me what to do is what my teens would say when when I would you know try to tell them well this, this is what's good for you this is what's good for you this is what's good for our family no you can't tell me what to do you know like that's I'm not free you're you're enslaving me um and you know where as a traditional sense of freedom is not so much just being able to do what you want to do but being having the ability to do what you ought to do right like the classical greek christian uh understanding of freedom is very much more in that in that vein of being able to control your own vices, right? Your humanity so that you can uh, work towards virtue. And so, yeah, the, the most simple way that I've heard that broken down, that distinction made is on the one hand, we're talking about freedom from, right? Freedom from oppression, yes. freedom from rules. On the other Correct. hand, we're talking about freedom for, you know, you yes. are, you are now free to flourish in your life in these ways. That's right. That's right. So negative rights versus positive rights. I think you would appreciate that the terminology. Then yeah. if you know that other terminology. Exactly. And so uh, what people fail to understand and in the research uh, has shown that like around 30 percent of Americans uh, really have an economic populism in their mindset that they want economic justice. They don't want to have the the wealth inequality that we have and the income inequality that we have, um, they would like to see a lot more small business and a lot less corporate structure uh, and uh, the economic rents that exist in, in all those venues. But at the same time, they're also socially center right. And they, so they're not, you know, kind of in the, uh, what we people would say, the um, the progressive side of the Democratic Party. They, they would look at that and, and shake their heads and go, this is not right for human flourishing. So. That 30% of the population, every four years, if we're going to talk about a presidential election cycle, they have to pick, right? They're the ones that have to vote for the lesser of two evils. And there's just so many of those people. Well, and that that means, I mean, that's basically a plurality, right? Because I'm just thinking about this offhand and sort of making up numbers. But I imagine there's probably 10% sort of fringe right, 10% fringe left. uh, And then you have 25% sort of traditional Republican, 25% traditional Democrat. And so that, that 30% ends up being the plurality that actually determines yes. the direction. Well, in one of the studies that I really have dug into recently, uh, the, the big, the big news in 2016 was that president Trump won the, the economic populist conservative social group three to one. Wow. That was margin. He, he took that from Hillary Clinton. She was just such a a noxious, you know, candidate that over his own noxious, you know, noxious behavior, that uh, people in that group tilted in his direction, probably because he, you know, he he uh, made himself appear to be a, a populist economic 
supporter of of blue collar workers you know like that whole we're going to bring back coal jobs and we're going to bring back you know we're going to have fracking and we're going to these uh towns that have have lost all their industrial you know capacity we're going to we're going to start that up again right like people believe that that was going to happen um and i you know that whether or not those people will vote again for president trump is remains to be seen but he dominated that that part of the population and uh you know we were we just barely had started so our candidate you know was a blip in that section this time we're going to have a significant more role in that and people say well you're going to tilt the election one way or another no we're not i mean it, it's people that should we should split that vote of people who know about us and and um feel compelled to to vote their conscience instead of holding their nose and going one way or another but i think those the people who do go for one of the main two will split because there's really no reason to go either way if you if you live in that quadrant of the act of the of the uh you know political plane there you're you're almost coming down to some like one decision and i don't think there's a uniform decision people make on that yeah totally totally understood um and i think your argument makes sense uh, i also think you know just uh in addition to just giving people and you know some way to vote their conscience um giving people the idea that there is a better way out there, you know, we can call it a, a third way, a better alternative, a more healthy mm -hmm. vision, whatever, but just giving them, giving them the idea that that's possible, I think can pay dividends in the future. But I'm wondering what the, what the, what the strategy of the American solidarity party looks like for the future. Because as I think about this, um, if I'm thinking, how can we incorporate these ideas into American life? It's, it's not with a national ticket that gets, mm -hmm. you know, less than 1% of the vote. To me, it's identifying and training and equipping local candidates uh, to implement these ideas at the local level and then build up from that. And I, I can imagine, you know, 10, 15 years hence, I can imagine if you do that, a state governor becoming, you know, you know uh, being elected from the American Solidarity Party because uh, you concentrated your resources in one part of the country, perhaps, you know, um, several municipalities in one state, you, um, you work kind of at the, at the municipal level in elections there and, and really kind of, um, polished your, your platform at that level for those people and were able to articulate that vision. So is that, is that part of the conversation going forward or is your, your plan to keep the conversation kind of at the national level? No, absolutely. I mean, that's hundred percent correct. I think the the biggest thing as we're starting to grow and we get more and more people interested and you know i was i was the uh, vice chair and then the chair for for the last two years i so got a lot of those kind of conversations you know hours and hours of discussing with people and then even people outside the party um that that are thinkers in this in this particular and what what i would say and again i'm not speaking for the party on this particular idea but but really we we are discussing post-liberal concepts right we're talking about Definitely. the concept that individual freedoms uh are not the only thing that are important that you have to balance that with the responsibility you have in solidarity with your brothers and sisters and so uh that resonates with not just the 30 percent of people who already fall in our space but the like you said the the people that aren't quite democrats or republicans you're kind of on the fringe of of those uh mindsets that how quickly would they turn coat and come to a much more comfortable, much more just space if there was an option, right? And I think what we, if if you go back into the, you know, the several decades uh, before we started fracturing into these camps that are so divided and, and have such a big chasm between them, 
that I would suspect, you know, if, if there was a way to go back and ask those people, you know, what their philosophies were, that most people or many, even more than 30 percent would would have fallen in an, an ec, a populist economic and uh, socially conservative viewpoint. And that because the two parties have gone their ways, that they've been slowly, uh, you know, getting pulled kind of like in a Stockholm syndrome uh, manner where they just start identifying with their captors and, you know, getting talking points that don't actually fit their their natural worldview. And when I hear Christians uh, talk about capitalism and I don't mean like a free market, I mean, like just the the corporate capitalism and the, the greed, uh, the love of money as a as a uh a good you know as like not just something that's a necessary thing that stops us from having socialism let's say but it's specifically a good as i say you know that's still greed <laughs> you know when when the economy is built and the bottom line is the functional reason for any economic activity that you should look at that as a christian and be very concerned but when people defend it as a good uh, you know, I see that as Stockholm syndrome that you've now taken on, you know, the the mindset of Republicans because they're pro-life, for example, or for religious freedom or family values or whatever it is that the reason that you would vote that way, that you start listening to everything they talk about. Yeah, it could be Stockholm. It, it also could be. And I've seen this in conversations with other people uh, who are you know very kind of pro free. I mean, I'm pro free market. Right. But I mean, like mm-hmm. in the sort of traditional Republican sense. Um, you know, these people kind of defend capitalism as like a necessary evil by saying that, you know, it's, it's, it's true that it works because it appeals to the greed in every human, but without that, we would have so many people in poverty and because a rising tide lifts all boats, it's good that we have really greedy people who are really after money because that gives other people jobs. And I think that's, that's going too far, obviously in defense of that, right? To to say that private ownership of capital is good you know, mm-hmm. the ability to, for private enterprise and free enterprise is good. That's a different thing than defending the sort of greed of oligarchs at the top of the, yeah, the economy. Exactly. exactly. And then people, you know, part of it is that people just don't know enough to see that background occur, like how economic rent dominates the whole process, that it isn't really a free market, that the market is very rigged. And that, uh, you know, especially when you talk about income inequality and wealth inequality, that, that, uh, there's lots of strings that are attached there that are not, you're not allowed to flow freely, you know, in your environment. So, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that, that I think we, your first question was like, what is the vision going forward? It's like, well, first you have to get people to, to to, think uh, about it. Just to think about it. Right. Just to, just to to reflect, to have that self-reflection. I think your freedom, you know, from and versus the freedom for, I mean, just that concept alone when I challenge people to consider what they what they feel freedom is, most people will will uh, start with freedom from, you know, and I'll say that. Yeah. But well, and I think I think it's because of our our unique American identity. We think, yes. you know, America based on freedom, what kind of freedom, freedom from the tyrant King George. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so and so then every conception of freedom that we have post 1776 becomes that kind of freedom. Correct. It's all framed that way. And I think when you, uh, you know, Patrick Deneen is a Notre Dame professor. Yeah. And I, I had opportunities. He wrote why liberalism failed. Um, and he just talks about, and it's very compelling that when people get to that point, I said, well, here's the problem is that when you, your deepest desire in the regard with regards to freedom is to be free from 
you know, some kind of constraint and that's your passion, like that's your goal, then as you start cutting constraints, you start cutting off people, right? You start cutting off your relationships because in, in, in the end of the day, the biggest constraints that you will ever have are the, the people that you are beholden to, the responsibilities that you have to your closest people, first of all, but then even, you know, when, when you cut those away, you really then quickly lose sense of any responsibility to further people. I mean, they're not even in your, in your house, <laughs> you know? So when you think of the responsibility to the poor, you know, and having a preferential option for the poor, like that just becomes, uh, you know, a complete abstraction as opposed to something that should be seriously taken as a first principle. Yeah, you're so right. And I love how the platform itself builds itself around this idea of personalism, this idea that we are all beholden to each other, that humans are social animals. Just yet, yesterday, I was having a conversation with a colleague who was talking about euthanasia and and making the case for why euthanasia should be an acceptable option if someone is at the end of their life and just wants to go out on their own terms. And I was trying, probably not well, but I was trying to, to illustrate this alternative vision that none of us exist in isolation from one another. None of us are atomistic individuals. None of us can can make a decision that's simply on our own terms like that. Um, and, and that's one reason among many why euthanasia is simply not an acceptable uh, policy outcome. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, speaking of policy outcomes, in the time we have remaining, I know we don't have a ton of time, but I'd like to ask you a few kind of specific questions about the platform itself. So I'm on the American Solidarity Party website and I see okay. it broken into uh, six different sections, life and family, civil rights, economics, civic engagement and public service, foreign policy and immigration, and environment. So let's just maybe pick a couple of those, starting with the life and family section. I love how, one, you just talk about the importance of family here, and you already mentioned Catholic social teaching, how the family is the domestic church, it is the bedrock of society, it is the baseline um, structure of subsidiarity. Uh, It's really important for governments to strengthen families. I think that's incredibly important. You also mentioned education, um, which I think is a great thing to include in a party platform, in a national party platform, because education is incredibly important, and we've done it incredibly poorly for the last several decades in this country. So can you talk a little bit more about the uh, the education platform of the American Solidarity Party? Yeah, you know, that's something obviously that's near and dear to me as a, as a public school educator and someone who has spent time in Catholic schools. Uh, and my kids went to Catholic school until ours closed, and then they, they spent their time in public school uh, themselves. That, uh, you know, I obviously have spent an entire lifetime, a professional lifetime in my adulthood, uh, you know, really being involved in this in this sphere. Um, and I think one of the things uh, from a teacher perspective is that we spend a lot of time as educators in staff development, uh, coming up with strategies to to uh, get information to students, uh, you know, even through relationships, of course, but even like in our pedagogy, of how do we get the kids to learn this or that? And I think. Uh, we get really bent out of shape and puts tie ourselves into actually I should say tie ourselves into knots into that shape, uh, trying to overcome serious uh, inequities in in um, in achievement and where kids come into the building and how they leave the building in terms of what they are able to accomplish. Uh, and I think that connection between family and education is just so critically important. That, you know, whatever we can do in the short time we have with a child in front of us in the classroom is just a tiny fraction of what that child experiences and, and the learning that they get and the value for uh, living in the moment and, and taking ownership of their learning and, and their, uh, 
growing as a person, right? That flourishing idea. I mean, so much of that happens in the family. So uh, that when you talk about education, it is appropriate for it to be in the life and family section because, uh, you know, your first educator, so your, your first educators are your parents, you know, and then uh, one of the things in this country that we fail to, you know, extend or have is a, an acknowledgement of the power of extended families, you know, how people, because of our our business setting and because of how our economy works, people move. There's just, just so much transience in the family life that you might move away from your grandparents, you know, and from your aunts and uncles and cousins. And so how many people are, as you said, like atomized uh, in nuclear families when that very rarely occurs around the world, right? And, and from my own cultural, like I, in my bio that you read, I had multiple aunts and uncles and cousins living in my house as I grew up. And the richness of that education, uh, you know, really helped my own education, not just because they were all very positive about education and were very always asking me how school was and, and helping me if I had, had problems, but, but just, the, um, just the richness of having adults always around to talk to. And, you know, it makes you mature faster. It makes you flourish in your own way because you have uh, multiple different uh, mindsets, worldviews, uh, personalities that you're always constantly dealing with, you know. And so obviously like those elements come into play in education. And then as a, as a party that believes in sphere sovereignty and you have, you know, the world of education, and then you have public schools and you have private schools. Uh, we have a lot of members who homeschool their kids and having a respect for that. Whereas, you know, if I'm coming from a public school setting, oftentimes public school teachers who, who have really, they don't have any friends that are homeschoolers. Uh, they did not uh, go to school with anyone and that, that, uh, experienced homeschooling that they kind of just automatically poo-poo that idea that it, it's inferior uh, you know to a, a quality public school education like how can someone who's not a professional teach as well as i can well because they have the deep relationship right? exactly yeah I, I have to say i was i was homeschooled uh, all the way through just okay. about i had a semester of public school um and yeah while it's while it's true that you know uh, professionally trained teachers can do great things in the classroom in public school or private school it's also true that they don't know any child, any student like the loving parent right. in the home does. Exactly, exactly. And there's just, it, so it all comes back to that, that first level depth of relationship that parents and uh, family members, and then your neighbors, you know, we've lost our touch with neighbors. Uh, and that, the, you know, that uh, one of the things I remember distinctly growing up is when, uh, you know, my parents would have me call my neighbors. And now we were, uh, kind of the only Indian family in our neighborhood. It was a blue collar, white neighborhood. And I'd call, you know, I remember, you know, call them Uncle Steve and, uh, you know, Aunt Ruth or whatever, whoever our neighbors were. And I knew, I'm like, they're not my uncles. There's no way they're my uncles, <laughs> you know. Uh, but that was, that was the culture. That was an extension, like an uber extension of your family, right? That your neighborhood yeah. uh, was a level of importance to, to uh, uh, life, and so I think that kind of helps your education as well, because you just there's, you don't just learn in the classroom, like learning is constant and it gives you that respect that moments are cherished. And so I have so many students that because of their the breakdown in their own family lives, when they come to school, it's just a drudgery. It's just something else to go through, to get through, to survive. Right. They're in survival mode as opposed to flourishing mode. Yeah, I have a friend who teaches high school math, actually. You said you're a math teacher as yeah, well, right? I'm a math teacher. Yes. Yeah, so I have a friend who teaches high school math in a um, 
in a sort of depressed socioeconomic neighborhood. And her stories are really, really sad. And the, the, the school is either an escape for her students or, like you said, just another thing that sort of is an added stressor to them. They end up dropping out after ninth or 10th grade, et cetera. Uh, and that's horrible. Right. So another thing I, I wanted to talk about real quick, uh, we're in a, an amazing year here. I've learned so much about criminal justice, about racism, about, about the experience of people of color in our country, especially in the criminal justice system. And so I've taken the, tried to take the opportunity uh, over the past um, months to learn more about this as we're having this national conversation about it. Um, and I think that, you know, both Democratic and Republican kind of policy solutions for these things miss the mark. And I was reading through the criminal justice stuff in the American Solidarity Party platform, and I was just impressed with with what's in here. So I'm just going to read for my listeners a couple of excerpts that struck me, and then uh, and then we can talk about it just a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. Maintaining public peace and order is a fundamental responsibility of government. However, in too many cases, our justice system is both harsh and ineffective. Despite having the largest incarcerated population in the world, we have failed to make communities safe or adequately address economic and racial disparities in arrests, convictions, and sentencing. Um, continuing on here in a different section of that same, uh, same part of the platform. Criminality is complex, the result of a culture that does not respect human life, the breakdown of tra- traditional social institutions, institutionalized racism, and a prison system that promotes social alienation, recidivism, and deprivation. Um, we believe that preve- preventing and punishing crime is, a, is an essential public service. Uh, we believe that our court system systematically disfavors the poor. We believe that prisons are designed for dangerous criminals. Mandatory sentencing requirements must be overturned. Drug addiction remains a social harm. It is vital to find ways of ending mass incarceration while not removing all laws against drugs and other vices. And then this is uh, one of the most interesting to me. It is also vital to recognize the social costs of pornography, which is inseparable from human trafficking, the promotion of pedophilia, and rape. We therefore support laws which criminalize the production and sale of pornography and deny categorically that pornography is protected speech. So I love everything that I just read there, Amar. And I think what it does is strike a balance between one, recognizing that public policing or, or that policing is a public good and an essential public service in the words of this platform. Two, um, that we need to have criminal laws and enforce criminal laws. But then on the other hand, that all of our punitive efforts need to also be restorative. We need to focus on the social ills that lead to these things. Uh, elsewhere in here, you mentioned community-led policing. Um, you look at things that would, would fall into this category of freedom from, you know, like pornography, for example, um, as being on the wrong side of the freedom for equation. These things actually suppress our freedom. They harm human flourishing, and that is why they should be criminalized, et cetera. They lead to even worse things like human trafficking. And so I, I love the way you strike a sort of via media, a third way between the sort of tough on crime stance of the traditional stereotypical Republican and the, you know, so-called soft on crime. Um, you know, every instance of, uh, every instance of enforced penal code is an example of like systematic dis- you know, disenfranchisement or, um, not disenfranchisement, uh, just being, being disadvantaged or, or targeted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Thank you. I, I appreciate those those uh, compliments. And I think that uh, you know people that we pride ourselves in having both and approaches to these issues, uh, where the main parties will just quibble over things. And and someone actually just in Twitter the other day said that that we were the moralists that could not make trade offs in our our policy like there was no way that a moralists like us that that have this high ground that we're taking could ever have a give or take 
And, and I said, well, that's what the main parties do, right? Yeah, like that's, that's so silly. Yeah, so, you know, uh, that's where the moralists dwell because they can never give up any of their, their uh, you know, prideful claims about this is the only way and this is the right way. Uh, it's that both end mentality, I think, you know, it goes back to the idea of Christian democracy. And I, for me, this particular part of our platform and, and reflecting on kind of the, the um, race uh, issues that we've had throughout the, the summer uh, is is that idea of going back to, you know, when you want to have some kind of reconciliation, that there needs to be a penance, you know, and for your Catholic listeners, I think people think of, of the sacrament of reconciliation, that there is that penitential component, and we've never had that suffering. You know, the, the, those in power have never suffered to restore the relationships that, that, uh, that they to the people that they disenfranchised or or took power away from. Um, Albert Thompson's on the National Committee, and I, he had a great speech to the Anglican uh, Bishops' Council. And he tells historically there was a time where, in, during the Civil War, the Southern bishops broke from the Northern bishops during the Civil War of the Anglican um, you know, Church. And they actually promoted slavery as a religious good, you know, like they used the Bible to, to defend the Southern notion of slavery. And then once the war was over, the, uh, after a, a short a period of time, the Northern bishops accepted the Southern bishops right back in, and there was no penance. There was maybe a tiny mea culpa, but there was never really a making right of that horrible wrong that happened, right? And so when you talk about being reparative, you know, that no relationship in your own life is reparative simply, I mean, I hope it's not simply by saying that you're sorry, right? That there, there has to be showing that you're sorry, making amends in some way to heal the pain that you've caused. Otherwise, the pain lingers. It doesn't go away. And so in your own marriage, uh, you know, in, in uh, spats you would have with like older kids, little kids might forget, but, you know, if you if you if you have those major massive battles with your junior high or high school level kids and you don't repair that relationship, that's going to linger. That animosity will stay and that child will not, you know, have a, a healthy relationship with you. Same thing's true at work, in your neighborhood. Uh, and then and all that spills off and we're, we're the, the government is a group of people. Right. And, and so when you have prisoners and uh, society, um, parts of our society that are broken off from us. You know, there needs to be that reconciliation. And in, in my way of speaking, I always say there's got to be a time where you carry that cross with them, you know, that they're carrying on their own right now. Uh, you know, when are you going to do that? When are you going to be, you know, Simon of Cyrene to, to be the one that helps carry that cross? And, and, show and that's that what solidarity is, right? Yes, exactly. I, I think we're just about out of time. I've got one more question for you, though. And, and one of the things I wanted to say is just you know, as I read through this platform, there are, as you'd expect, there are some things where I think like, oh, maybe I wouldn't quite word it the same way. Maybe I don't quite see it sure. exactly the same lens, but I have, I have no issue, um, you know, voting for you as a candidate because we've, we've had a long discussion here. We agree on all the fundamentals. We have the same, we, we share a common vision for what, um, what human flourishing looks like. Um, and even though, you know, you and I might be able to sort of have an extended discussion on, you know, the, the economics part of the platform, for example, um, sure. you know, uh, again, the common vision, the common foundation is what's incredibly important. And I just dream of a day in which we have more people in the halls of Congress, uh, state legislatures, governor seats, maybe even the presidency who, who share our vision of these things. 
and can have civilized discussions in which, you know, there, there aren't moral compromises being made, but there are reasoned discussions. There's, you know, empirical evidence way to make policy decisions all in pursuit of this common good that we, we share a common vision of. And I think that's great. But the, the final question I have for you, is there a way out of this bipartisan, I would say false political binary into which we've been forced? I mean, I, I hope the American Solidarity Party is a way out of that. Um, but the third party in America, obviously, is not a not a new thing. There have been third parties for as long as we've had a two party system. Um, and, and we're still, you know, we find ourselves, I think, just locked in this like ever, ever more vicious and vitriolic um, cycle in which we're vacillating back and forth um, every four to eight years between political parties and we grow to hate each other more. Uh, and so one of the things I noticed, again, going back to your platform in the civic engagement section, you have um, you have a part in here that says uh, the House of Representatives and the lower houses of state legislatures should be elected by a system of proportional representation, uh, mm-hmm. which which is a much more sort of European parliamentary style idea. Um, and then you also say all elections should be held using either a ranked choice system or approval voting, um, which is, again, uh, something that you find more in, in sort of European parliamentary style systems of government. So can you talk about that maybe in the context of how we sort of get past this political um, false binary choice that we have to make every four years um, and talk about what the future could look like in, in you know, maybe, maybe we're being optimists, but but what's the way out if there is one? Yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, again, it's something that we talk about constantly. I think the, the the great opportunity we have is that if you look at the libertarians and uh, that they're the third party right now, you mentioned that earlier that your friend would say, well, why not Joe Jorgensen of the Libertarian Party? Uh, but in, in kind of polling and research, again, the number of people who are liberal uh, in, in that capitalist sense and liberal on social issues uh, consistently is very small. You know, it could be under 10 percent of the population, which is what they what they'll get, you know, as a a fully fleshed out party at this point that's been around for 50 years, you know, since the 70s, uh, that they're going to get the people that believe that they're actually going to be able to they're on, I think, all 50 ballots. And so the people who want that are going to vote for it. And the fact that they're out there trying to get more people, uh, the, the data actually doesn't support that they can get any more people. Right. Because they're just those people don't exist. Yep. As for us, we started in 2016, let's say, as a the first time official presidential candidate that was on ballots. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's, like I said, about 30 percent of the people that are in our quadrant. And if we were able to get all of those people as a third party to take notice, that would immediately change the mindset of the major two parties, because then they would never win uh, 50% of, of a, they would never have a mandate in anything. And so what would then happen is perhaps the the movement would happen for us to have ranked choice voting or approval voting, a, a system of voting where it's not a winner take all proposition, which forces then uh, you know, parties to cooperate. There's got to be coalitions that are built. And so part of the reason that we have so much vitriol and so much distance between the parties is they don't need to cooperate in order to win the elections around the country, you know, like the state legislature uh, races and the the uh, House of Representatives and the Senate. Like they can have seats that'll fluctuate in their in their like you were saying, uh, you know, 25 percent core people. Then you have the fringe people that they're stealing really from our quadrant uh, and and winning seats. And then they just have 
you know, the gridlock that exists because there's no reason to give or take and, and whoever's in power gets to do what they want for four years. But then pe the people in our quadrant will switch over and, uh, you know, flip to the other side and give them a chance. And, and that's really what's going on there because the, the core people are not changing. And so if we take over that spot, in my opinion, again, I, it's a hope, right? It's a dream that that's what it's a third party. You kind of have that, that vision and mindset is that if we like really uh, take that control of that location and hold on to our own people, it may draw the two parties back towards us to try to get those people back, right? Now you're, because you're not, the Republicans are not stealing from the Democrats directly or vice versa. They're stealing from people who are not part of either group. And most of those people are with us. I share your optimism. You know, maybe it's maybe it's naive, but I share it. Uh, and I hope that we can work towards that better future. I will say, Amar, um, I, you'll be happy to know that uh, my wife and I are both casting our votes for the American Solidarity Party. Um, you, you're on the ballot here, so you're not even just improved writing candidate. You're actually on our ballot. We got our ballots in the mail and I opened it up to make sure. And, and there you are, <laughs> you and Brian. So uh, so we'll be casting our vote. We look forward Thank to doing you. that. Um, I'd like to encourage my listeners to read up more on the American Solidarity Party. I think um, what Amar and his team is up to uh, is really, really good stuff. Uh, I encourage you to go to their website, solidarity-party.org, and I will link to it on the website here as well. Uh, and I, I just love the platform as well. Um, you can see that right on their website and you can read through all those things, how um, how the American Solidarity Party, I think, really strikes a really good um, third way uh, that breaks the binaries into which we often let ourselves fall in political discourse and articulates a vision forward for the common good of everyone in our country, which is really important and, and what politics ultimately is all about. Well, Amar, that's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for joining this this episode of the podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you and picking your brain about the the party, the platform, the way ahead. Uh, I wish you the best in the election. I know that uh, victory is not within grasp, but I, I hope that we can at least um, get these ideas out there, get people thinking about a, a better way forward and maybe you know, 10, 20, maybe even 50 years hence, um, these ideas can be really a huge part of reshaping the conversation around so many issues that are near and dear to many of us. Well, thanks, Zach, for having me on. And, and thank you for your support and giving me the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Absolutely. Have a good night, Amar. Thank you. Thank you.